This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you tell us who you are, where you're speaking from and what you do? I'm Fergus Fielden. I'm an architect um, and director at Field and Fowles. I am working on a number of interesting projects at the moment, including the National Railway Museum in York and Capel Manor College in southeast London, among other educational and cultural projects. I'm speaking from home at the moment as I split my week between London and Bath. I've been going into the studio sporadically for the last few months um, whilst it's been particularly quiet as it's really it's really fantastic having all of the resources around me there and then one or two key people have been coming in occasionally. One of the um, privileges of, of doing this is I kind of get insights into where people have been speaking from and where they've been working. Some people have been squirreled away in uh, in kind of room cupboards or, or converted cupboards into offices. Other people have been in attic bedrooms and things like that. Could The space you're in, our um, listeners don't have this <laughs> view that I have. is this wonderful open sort of barn-like space. I'm curious about that. So uh, I'm working from a small converted barn, or which was once just a... Uh, a cart shed on a, on a farm next next door to where my mother lives actually and it was actually our first ever project that we did uh, or one of our one of our very early projects in the practice um, it was extremely kind of cheap but it actually uh, it used lots of natural materials and simple plan and the principles that I guess we've kind of started to to roll out across lots of our projects but it's a very nice open space to work in with views of the countryside. There's a workshop across the yard, which I can use some woodland nearby to play in like I did when, when I was young. So uh, I am very lucky. <laughs> the practice is still relatively young, yet you've, you've done so much. Could, could you kind of tell the story of, of how the practice was formed and your, kind of your, your journey to where you are now? Yeah, so I grew up with a father who was an architect, um, and for a while that kind of put me off going into practice. It, although I, I, I always loved architecture, or, or building in particular, I was always quite hands-on as a kid in terms of building dens and tree houses and playing outside. But I took all, all the wrong A-levels for architecture because I was going to do medicine, like a number of architects. And then I went for a long walk with my dad around Salisbury Hill, just outside Bath. And we we walked around and around and discussed it, the kind of the, the merits of both. And the conclusion in a way was that if I studied architecture, I'd probably really enjoy the course. And most people who studied architecture didn't become architects anyway, but it was a good foundation for lots of other things. And of course, once I started, I absolutely loved, I loved the subject. I loved the atmosphere and working alongside other people. And then I started working with Ed, um, my business partner, in our second year on competition schemes. And we both came from kind of quite different, uh, different backgrounds and different design approaches, but they were complementary. And there was quite a bit of success there. Um, we found, especially in our first project, which we were, we were given a commission straight out of part one. So that was a house, a new build house in, in Wales that we were going to take up to planning. But in the end, we delivered it and it got published. 
and it started winning us more work. So we founded the practice in a way straight out of part one. I wanted to move on to some of some of the work and also want to talk a little bit about the studio. But one of the things that really struck me was how your work kind of always seems to sit between two different poles. There's materiality and craft, but then there's sort of using technology in really kind of clever, sensitive ways, looking at historic and vernacular precedents, but always with a view to buildings being kind of of the moment, somehow responding to the, the contemporary condition. Uh, and your studio, of course, I think, as something that Ed said, was that it was about bringing the rural vernacular into the city. Do you see it that way, what I've described? Or is it um, more nuanced than, than I've uh, articulated, perhaps? I think lots of our work is more instinctive than we realise. We describe it sometimes as having quite a clear process um, and being derived from historic and geological and other references that might be down to the prevailing conditions and the history of the site. But actually, I, I, I think that lots of it is quite quick and instinctive. And especially when Ed and I work together, we very quickly settle on where a building should be sited and what the orientation might be and what we think are the significant influences which it's responding to. More recently, we've been looking at trying to sum up what our philosophy is. And broadly speaking, we're, we've described it as, as low-tech. And low-tech is, is really about the tangible and about the kind of experiential way that we design and that we deliver buildings. So it's certainly, as you describe, it's not anti-technology. In fact, quite often technology is enabling us to do things and deliver buildings that are very contemporary, but it's quite quietly used. There certainly doesn't, um, the buildings don't shout about how they've been constructed or at least the use of technology. That's the broad theme at the moment. And it partly came through our training at undergraduate in Cambridge, where the first principles of environmental design were really drilled into us from, from the outset. And we, we, we love those aspects about the way that people interact with their buildings, the way that things can be, we like environments that can be altered so that you can open the doors and the windows and, and change your environment according to your needs. I mean, I really am pretty averse to building management systems and sterile environments. How do you and Ed work together? Because obviously there are some partnerships where the directors almost work independently. They have their own projects, their own teams. But it sounds like for you, there's collaboration at the very beginning at projects inceptions. Does that, does that carry on or do you, are you then kind of take a project and, and run with it yourself? Yeah, I think Ed and I have always worked reasonably closely together and actually more so again at the moment. And I think, you know, like lots of partnerships, we, uh, we set out as, as friends working together at university and then different life forces at certain points you're you're working more independently um, but at the moment we we've made a really conscious effort to both be working alongside each other more both in the studio out on site together we visit each other's um, projects whilst they're in construction and i think we we've come to be more aware that we're we're driving the direction of the practice I suppose we always we always have been, but we weren't quite aware of that. And so we're trying to be better leaders on projects and really be more outspoken because we have we do have a pretty democratic environment in the studio where the hopefully the best the best idea always wins. But I suppose it it goes through a certain process where 
Ed and I will kind of mold and shape it and, and edit it so that it all, the, the whole body of work is very much from, from one studio. But we, we, we really enjoy that and we, we spark off each other quite quickly and a project can go through a huge number of iterations during a one half hour design review. And once we're both kind of behind any one idea, it feels like it, it has the momentum and it moves very quickly. So that's, that's always a real joy when that happens. Which leads very nicely onto the, the question I had about the studio and, and the studio culture. But I wanted to sort of ask how, how you sort of sustain it, how you nurture it, how you allow the studio culture to change and um, evolve and the, the capacity for, for outsiders to come in and adapt to it, but also to adapt it. We care deeply about the studio culture and we try and invest in it, both through kind of activities that we do together. So whether that's to do with trying to make sure that there's enough social events and eating together, cooking for one another. That doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it, it feels particularly important. In fact, there was a stage once in the practice where we were really worried about the studio culture and we had a, a few people left to go to different practices and we really reevaluated what we were about and what we wanted the culture to be. And the thing which we introduced at that point was the studio lunches where we would rotate among the staff to cook for one another. And almost instantly, it transformed the way that we worked and we communicated and we enjoyed spending time together. So it is, it is very strong, but it's a real challenge to maintain it, especially as we grow. During lockdown, there's the same with lots of people. It's been harder because we're all, we're all working remotely, but we want, to get, we want to get people back in as soon as um, it's kind of sensible and safe to do so. We're also looking at opening a new studio in Bath very soon, um, in a month's time. That's the next challenge, is how, how a practice grows and maintains one culture across multiple sites. So we're, we do a lot of talking and thinking about our strategic plan and about how the practice is going to develop and how we're going to maintain a culture as we go from 20 to 30 to 40, perhaps beyond. The number of practices that I've seen who reach about the point that we are and then suddenly get a real injection of say bigger commercial work the scale of the practice grows hugely and you speak to the the people who were there at the at the outset and they they hark back to a time when it was a smaller tighter knit community and they felt happier i guess so we're looking not we're not necessarily looking at architecture practices because i don't know that there are some who have a have a better culture, but there's lots of other businesses who seem to do it actually slightly better than architects and care and invest in it slightly more. We're constantly zooming in and out and saying, let's make sure that we don't take on the wrong type of work or grow too fast or, or that the culture doesn't make a, a really big shift within, say, six months, a year. Uh, and then it's really hard to to regain it. It's a, it's a challenge, but <laughs> but one which we're we're up for, I guess. <laughs> The geographical spread of your projects is really wide, and I think that's that's something that, that people often often note. Is this geographical spread something that's just happened by chance? <laughs> you know, insofar as this this is the this is the work that you've got, or these are the, the projects that you're most interested in taking on, or is or is this a conscious thing, not to kind of pigeonhole yourself as a London practice or you know work in the southeast, but to kind of look very consciously beyond. 
when we founded the practice, our first project, TPREN, was um, in the Brecon Beacons. And that was the job that was uh, available at the time. Um, we didn't realize how significant it would be in setting the direction of the practice. But then quite quickly, we also started to win other rural commissions as a result of that. So the next job was down in uh, Bude in, in North Devon. And then we took on a job. I think there was one in Essex. Uh, and then quite quickly, we started to build some projects in the north of England. So our job in Carlisle and Yorkshire, they were both very significant. So in a way, as a young practice, you know, you take the work that's available, but also they were more interesting commissions in some senses because they were really open sites. They they were quite diverse. They enabled us a degree of freedom, which we may not have had if we were just working in, in cities. And then it became a, a bigger thing for us. You know, it became about part of our kind of philosophy. I'm personally, I'm working on a lot of projects across the north of England. And it's been a real joy because, especially with the cultural commissions, the clients sometimes either know one another or they might know of the site that you're working on somewhere else. So you have a kind of a common cultural language um, and reference points. And that's really, that's really helpful when designing. We love the countryside, so we love cycling. We've always uh, we've always cycled to to our sites wherever they are. So we get the train, and then sometimes it's quite a long cycle. I mean, our first job was about twenty five miles each way, which was a bit too much, but we managed it. And then you get a sense of the place as well. So. I think as as we kind of mature, we're realizing that spending longer on site and in in the cities or the places that we're working has a really tangible um, impact on the quality of the response. I'm personally trying to to stay away quite a lot when I go up to certain sites now, so that I can be there early in the morning or in the evening, and I can go out and and see what the the, the culture is like in the area and have longer extended conversations. Because lots of architects, including us um, in the past, have kind of, you, you arrive on site, you have your meeting, it's, it's frantic, and you never even see the wonderful cathedral or the castle or whatever it may be, which is on your doorstep. And then you disappear back to London. And I don't think that's necessarily, well, certainly not what we want to be doing. And I think ultimately you're designing in a bit more of a vacuum if you're doing, if you're doing that. One of the very distinctive things about your work is your approach to the materials. There's a sort of a purity in the treatment of them. You know, there seems to be a preference for materials with kind of quite rich sort of patterns. So you actually don't need to do much to them. They have that, that richness in, in, inherent in them. It may, it may be a too obvious a question, but how do you go about <laughs> choosing the materials that you want to use? Because, you know, it's, the, the one of the other projects I've visited, the, the Western Yorkshire Sculpture Park, that project kind of almost emerges out of the ground. It has this kind of almost sort of geological aspect to it. But obviously other projects are are rather different. So how how do you kind of go about thinking, well, what material we think would be appropriate for this? And and how does that then also, I guess, relate to the, the design that, that you've created? Because obviously these things go you know, completely kind of hand in hand. We've always enjoyed kind of making test samples and trying trying lots of different materials, but in a way they are all within a certain kind of uh, range, which is it tends to be materials that have have their natural tone and their natural texture and color. And originally that started from trying to find what was available locally to to each site. 
And so some of that was almost by accident. So our first project used a lot of recycled slate because that was available. And we used larch that was, uh, that was milled on the other side of the valley. And, and that had its own specific qualities. So for example, it was very soft because it was Welsh larch, so it had grown quite fast. And then working with the, with the builder and the building control officer, they were saying, well, we don't trust the, the wide spacing of, of your rain screen cladding. So, so we, we, we started doing kind of mock-ups from day one. And, and these days, we're lucky in that our studio has outdoor space. We have a workshop. We can have lots of test panels and, and we leave things out in the rain a lot and we take them up to site and kind of leave them to be abused by local people and see what happens to them. So it's definitely a deep part of the culture of the studio. We're, we're constantly kind of overflowing with samples, um, some of which we've made up or mixed up on site, um, on our own site, and other ones that are, have been ordered in. And it's interesting, it's a bit like a studio at university that, like that, that an internal culture develops. And then when people join the practice, in a way, they kind of know that that's partly what we're about, because they, it, it's evident throughout the studio and, and on the walls and things lying around. It is really fundamental, but I don't think it's, um, it's never formulaic. We don't kind of go to a site and say, right, what is the local stone? What, you know, what timber varieties are, are available? It's both kind of tectonic and formal and then quite instinctive as well. And then there's this kind of layering of all these different references. And then I think it's probably where that kind of instinct then starts to come through. And ultimately, probably Ed and I say whether we're content with the direction or the tone or the pattern or the texture of certain materials. But we are really quite dogged about it as well. When it's when it's not right, <laughs> you know, we will just we're stubborn and obstinate and we'll just keep going again and again. And that it takes time and it takes quite a lot of money. I mean, I'm sure that we would be a lot more profitable if, if we just settled on things. But when it's wrong, it's it, it's so evident and you can you can feel it, you can see it. For example, like the Western, we did lots and lots of mock-up trial panels and that sometimes it was hard to articulate. Sometimes it was obvious. It was just the tone or it's just the texture or it was the process that was wrong. But once we started to, to get close to it and it did start to feel like the local millstone grit and there was something much more geological, it felt like, right, we're hit, we've hit on something here and, and now we can tweak it and we can refine it and everything was recorded so we can replicate it to a degree. But I don't think projects should have too much control. When you want that natural variation, it's a bit like how craft comes into a project and the imperfections start to come through. So while the drawings and the tender and the specification are all very tight, we then allow that kind of leniency or that kind of uh, the, the path to drift a little bit. And I think that's where you get real joy in a project um, because it tells the story in the same way that often historic buildings do. You've obviously now, even in the kind of the very short time the practice has, has been in existence um, comparatively, you're getting some big commissions from the uh, Natural History Museum and National Railway Museum. Is it a challenge to maintain those very specific ways that you work that, that you've just described when you're working on such a scale with such a budget and with this kind of you know the institutional apparatus all around it is a challenge it's a, it's a challenge when sometimes we have for example somebody will commission a job and as you say they're big institutions so 
you think that they're going to be your client throughout and they really say understand how the practice work and our approach but then somebody else that person may move on to a different project or you don't see much of them again and there's all of these different layers of hierarchy and of information that come from from the different client representatives and that is a real challenge and i mean it's something i've been thinking about a lot recently is trying to almost write a manifesto at the start of each project and make sure that everyone really understands that because we we're often employed as the lead designer and as as such you know you really want to lead from the front and you want to set the tone and you want to try and make sure that everyone is signed up to the same values and everything else but there's also we are still a young practice and so i think there's we have to keep winning winning the trust of clients even throughout you know several years of working with them which is both a good and a bad thing i i do sometimes wonder whether the great and the good whether whether chipperfield gets challenged on such kind of minutiae that we do sometimes <laughs> and so yeah it's a, it, it is a real challenge and i think once we've delivered some of these bigger scale projects i'm sure that that will help with future commissions your work is sort of quite tightly grouped these sort of arts cultural educational buildings is that is that really the sector that you're kind of you're most interested in that you're focused on or do you see a kind of expansion you know in time to other building types other other areas we love anything that has a has a public interface i think that we're not we there's a number of sectors that we've been working more in and as you say arts and culture um education uh, master planning those are really important but i think that over time you know we we i would love to for example design a railway station one day or uh, i love master plans that are really complicated and especially when they're kind of complicated socially and politically and that they can have a transformative impact on space and uh, on a city and the way that people use their space or a sense of ownership so that's our intention over time is to actually keep expanding i think we're we're particularly kind of conscious and nervous about working for speculative people i suppose um most of our clients are end users and there's a real joy and richness that comes in the projects from that so that's really kind of fundamental to us wherever possible we want to be close to the the end users i usually ask kind of what's what's next and you've already explored some of that you know what what do you have on the kind of immediate horizon beyond what you've already mentioned we are pretty ambitious you know we want to be initially we want to kind of hone what we're doing within the uk but then i would like i would really like us to start working um more broadly um in europe that that's probably the next step we've talked about having multiple smaller studios across the country so um london bath one in the north and then potentially having a kind of a making base somewhere whether we'll will achieve our ambitions i don't know but in a way i love the way that we we have got it all set out if if we can and the way that for example we love food we want we want food to be a critical thing within all of our projects and our studios and we want we want somewhere where people can eat together where they can make we want workshops that can do lots of interesting prototypes and tests and so that's that's where we'd like to go and i think i think really what's happening with the practice at the moment is it's not so much about projects it's more about um there's a bigger focus at the moment on the practice in the studio and how the culture can evolve from here so we there's lots of debate within the practice about that i mean we're becoming a net zero practice the environmental debates that are kind of raging within the practice about all sorts of things about 
which which projects we should take on, where we should be working, how we should be living. I mean, I think it's really helpful because the level of kind of awareness and information in the practice is, is going up so fast at the moment that it's brilliant. There's this collective growth, which I'm really excited by. Fergus Fielden, thank you very much. Thanks so much. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating, and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.